Hello, welcome back to the Claim the Stage podcast. I'm Angela Lucier. I'm your host. I'm also an author, speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood. We are a network of public speaking clubs for women and can be found at speakersisterhood.com. And Claim the Stage is a podcast all about public speaking for women who want to amplify your voice, get better at speaking, feel more comfortable, have stronger messages, make a stronger connection with your audience, all of that stuff. And today's episode, episode 109, delivers. <laughs> today's episode is a Q&A episode. It's all about signature talks, how to put together longer, lengthier talks, and how to practice them. Some personal questions were asked about my own process, who are my heroes, some of my embarrassing moments, and so much more. So we have a lot to cover on today's episode. But before we jump into that, I wanted to share a couple of today's sponsors. The first sponsor is Speaking School for Women. This is my online course I've been teaching since 2016, and it's coming back as a self guided course in March. So rather than tell you about it myself, hear about what it's like from a past student who took the class a few months ago. One cold night about a decade ago, in the midst of a complete life transformation, I whispered to a friend, I need a bigger stage. I wanted to share how I was transforming my pain into a story of growth and love, but I had no idea how to actually do that. I spent a decade getting clear on who I am and why I want to share my knowledge, but until I enrolled in Speaking School for Women, I did not know how to actually deliver the goods in a way that supported my future as well as my clients. Since I completed speaking school, I've booked a half dozen gigs and I have a clear plan for my professional speaking career. Angela walked us step-by-step from clueless beginner to professional. She saved me countless hours of research and the painful trial and error of going the journey alone. That is a story from Jolie Hamilton, who's a psychology researcher and certified sexuality educator, and she has a new book coming out, and she writes all about how to help entrepreneurs to have more successful relationships. And if you own a business, you know exactly why that's important. (laughs) So thank you to Jolie for sharing that experience in the course, and I'll have more information as speaking school gets closer. But for now, mark your calendars. It's coming back in March. This episode is also sponsored by Told Video original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand, here to help you with your next step in marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Learn more at toldvideo.com. If you contact Told before March 1st, you get 15% off a video project. All right, let's jump into question number one. And I I wanted to do this Q&A episode. It's been a while since I've done one. And I was starting to notice the questions piling up. So I tried to pull a diverse list of questions and kind of get at the things that I saw coming up most frequently. This question has come up a couple times and I kind of like it because I think it gives a little bit of insight into who I am and also could help you to find some new heroes for yourself. So question one is who are your heroes? I think it's really important to define what a hero is. It's probably different for everybody. But I like this question because it made me think a lot about how I define a hero. I think a hero is someone who isn't afraid to go on a learning and exploration adventure to see what they find and then doesn't criticize or have expectations of what that journey should look like or be. This is really important. I think a hero is someone who just kind of goes into it and allows it to be what it is 
and then takes from it something and then teaches others about it. So this is very hard to do. And I think it's the reason a lot of books and blogs and ideas are the same because people often have the fear of looking or sounding or being different or wrong. But you can always tell when someone is carving their own path or is pulled by their own creativity and ideas. And I think those people are heroes. So my first hero is Seth Godin. You may have heard of him. (laughs) He's kind of popular. He probably has, I wouldn't say probably, he definitely has millions of fans around the world. And I discovered him in 2004 when I read Purple Cow. And I I didn't just stumble upon him on my own. The company I was working for assigned everybody in all the marketing departments around the country to read this book. And then we got on a conference call And it was kind of like a book club, and we all had to talk about what we learned from the book. And it was my first experience with his writing, and it was my first chance to really think about how I wanted to stand out. And I was brand new. I I was one year out of college. I didn't major in marketing, so I didn't really know that much about what I was doing. And his book was the first book that allowed me to feel comfortable with being different, And if you haven't read Purple Cow, first of all, you should. So find it somewhere. It's like everywhere. And just to give you a sense of what to expect, the the main message of the book is he he was driving through the Midwest. I think he was driving across country, and he noticed that there were brown cows everywhere, just lining the roads, just farms and farms of brown cows. And he thought, you know, when I get home, I'm probably not going to remember any of these cows. But if there was one purple cow, I'd probably remember that one. And that's the idea of what he gets at in the book is to stand out and not be afraid of being different because when you're different, you're remarkable and people remember you. And that was the first time that someone said being different is okay and being weird is okay. And I think I grew up believing that different was wrong and different was bad and just stay the course. And it's okay if you have weird ideas, just don't tell anybody about them. <laughs> and so I think I, I like privately had a lot of crazy ideas, but felt like, well, no one really wants to hear these. So I'll just keep them in my journal and um, protect them with my life. <laughs> so in 2008, I read Tribes, which was another book he wrote about finding the people who agree with you and see the world the same way you do and then go build things with them instead of trying to convince people who don't agree with you to, you know, follow you. And that was really a big game changer for me too because I feel like I kept meeting people who had totally different perspectives, were not like-minded, didn't understand my perspective and didn't understand my goals and and ambition. And I was constantly trying to convince them that I had something worth saying and I think my ideas are good. And when I read his book and thought, well, what if I'm just talking to the wrong people? That was such a major game changer for me. And I started to seek out people who were like me. And I was like, oh my God, they are out there. (laughs) I found some and they exist. And I'm I'm going to hold their hand and never let it go. And I started to create things for those people. I created a group with my friend Dana called the Do What You Love group. And it started to attract people like us who wanted to not sit at a job and like rot for the next 40 years, but actually like be creative and have ideas and put them out into the world and help people and let our creativity guide us. And we found lots of people like us. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, I'm not that weird. There's lots of people who feel this way. And that was really 
nurturing to that side of me that felt kind of rejected by the world. And it also made me feel like I could do something with these ideas. And then in 2010, I read Lynchpin, which was another book he wrote. And he kind of says, the linchpin is this piece that goes in a car, in the mechanics of the, of the car. And without the linchpin, the car doesn't work. And it's a really small piece. It's just this little circle with a stick or something. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to describe it. It's really, it's really basic, though. And he says, without the linchpin, the car doesn't work. So at work and in the world, you want to be a linchpin. You want to be so important that without you, things fall apart. And I love that, too, because it means you're actually taking a really big risk by doing that. And you're not playing it safe by being this person who is so integral to the success of something that if you don't show up, things might fall apart. And so I I just feel like over and over again, Seth has really opened my eyes to things that I felt like I should abandon or things that were not driving with the society's expectations and really taught me that you can be yourself and that's fine. (laughs) And maybe it's even better than fine. Maybe it's a really important thing to do. And he has a a daily blog he puts out. It's really short. It's like one paragraph a day. But each paragraph he writes, he really crafts with thought and precision. And it's something that if you read it each day, it will give you something to chew on and to reflect upon and to apply to your own life. So even if you're not currently marketing something or you're not really sure about what you want to do next, just subscribe to his blog. It'll give you lots of food for thought. So that's my first hero. And I continue to go back to his work anytime I'm building something or thinking about doing something because it just really inspires me and reminds me of all these key turning points and messages that I want to also be living by. The second hero is Sark. And you may have heard of Sark. She, Sark is an acronym for Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy. <laughs> First of all, that is badass. <laughs> and she's been writing probably, I think, since the early 90s now. And I found her in 2010 Uh, Actually, my friend Dana, who I started the Do What You Love group with, introduced me to Sark. One day, we were just hanging out at her place, and she pulled a book off the shelf and said, have you ever read this? And I was like, no, what's that? It was really colorful. The cover had handwritten text and a hand-drawn picture. I think it was of a woman lying in a hammock, but it was very cartoony and had like a very whimsical kind of vibe to it. And I grabbed it, and I started looking through it, and immediately was so just pulled in by this woman's creativity and unique gift for sharing ideas that were so profound in such a simple way. And the fact that she handwrites every single book and marker. <laughs> Did you hear that? She has, she has, I don't know how many books she has, maybe 20 at this point. And I think the last couple were typed, but up until then, she was handwriting her books in marker and then they would get printed and, you know, replicated. But instead of reading text like uh, Times New Roman font or something, you're reading all of her books in her own writing. And that makes it so much more special and so much more personal. And within each chapter, she would draw little doodles, little side messages, pictures of things, graphs. She just, 
she would infuse her own personal touch in every single page of every book she wrote. And that was the first time I'd ever seen someone go outside the format in such a creative and unique way. And it made me think, oh, you can do that? You know, sometimes you kind of have to see it in order to know it's even possible. And Sark does that. And so I have her book, Succulent Wild Woman. I have another book she wrote called Prosperity Pie. She has so many great books that all kind of have a different focus, but they all have the same energy and flair and whimsy to them. So you always know you're reading a Sark book. And in 2011, I think I got to go to a retreat with her at a yoga retreat center in Western Massachusetts. And I remember when she walked in, she was wearing a purple cape with the hood on. And she had on purple spandex pants and a black spandex tank top. And she walks in and sits down in front of, I think, 15 or 20 of us. And she goes, oh, I'm so nervous. I feel so nervous right now. Who else feels nervous? And everybody raised their hand and she said, let's all be nervous together. And then immediately no one was nervous. And she said, what do you guys think of my cape? And I'm like, this is going to be the best weekend ever. (laughs) And it was. She was so fun and just herself and had so many great ideas and so many amazing stories to share. And, you know, speaking of what Seth shared about tribes, Sark is in my tribe or I'm in Sark's tribe. I don't know. And I just really respect and appreciate people who are putting it out there and unapologetically. And she has been doing that, I think, as a pioneer for the last 30 years. And it's just so impressive and it's so inspiring. So I highly recommend following these two people if you're not already, or at least just taking a look. Sark's website is planetsark.com and Seth Godin's website is I think it's sethgoden.com, but he says you can just Google Seth and you'll find me, which is true because he has such a popular blog. He shows up at the top of the search results. So there you have it. Question number one, who are your heroes, Seth Godin and Sark? Question number two, what goes into a signature talk? (laughs) We talk about this a lot in the speaking school for women, and it also comes up pretty frequently in our speaking speaker sisterhood clubs because a lot of the members are practicing speeches that are 5, 10, 12 minutes long. But if they want to put together a signature talk, those talks are significantly longer, usually 30, 60, 90 minutes long. So how do you go from a 5 or 10 minute speech to an hour? Well, I'm going to give you an outline of how to build a signature talk. And it's hard to do without knowing exactly what your topic is and you know, what you're talking about, but this will give you a sense of how to sift through all of your material. And I'd say the number one question I get is, how do I figure out what to put in and what to leave out? Because especially for those of you who've been working in your field for 20 or 30 years, you have such an incredible body of work. You could probably talk about it for 60 hours <laughs> and still have more content. So you, it's up to you as the presenter to really get clear on your three to four core takeaways. These are the things that matter the most that you have to communicate in order to make your point and make it feel like you have provided value to your audience. And when you give 10 takeaways or 20 takeaways, your audience gets lost and they leave there feeling like, wow, that was a lot of information. Now what am I supposed to do with all of that? It's just too much. So you don't want to do the fire hose approach and give everything you've ever learned about a topic. You want to be the pro and be thoughtful of how you're presenting it by getting really, really clear on those three to four core takeaways. 
And these takeaways should match the goals of your work, right? Like you should have a mission. You should be clear on what you're presenting to people. And you don't want to be so all over the place that your goals aren't really closely aligned and similar, right? So I'm going to teach you how to pick those three to four core takeaways and also how you talk about them. Because it's not just what you say, but it's how you teach it. And that means thinking about things like audience interaction and getting your audience involved and not just talking at them for 60 minutes. Nobody likes that. Also doing things like storytelling in order to illustrate your point and not just giving advice and then moving on to the next point, but sharing a story that helps them to understand why it's important and also to solidify the message. And I think something that we often forget as speakers is that your audience isn't going to remember exactly what you said, but they're going to remember how you made them feel. And they'll remember how you made them feel through the power of storytelling. So you have to make sure you're telling stories throughout your talk as well. And those stories need to be applicable to your point so that they drive home the goal of your message and not just, I like this story, so I want to tell it. (laughs) But it has to be attached to whatever you're trying to teach. So I'm going to use my signature talk as an example. And then hopefully that will help you to get clear on your own. In my 60-minute signature talk, Discover Your Power Voice, I have four key takeaways. One is the most important one, I think, and this is a big game changer for a lot of people, and it's that public speaking is a skill. It's not something you're born with or not. It's something that you can work on and build. And I, and I teach that one core takeaway through an improv game that we kick off the whole workshop with. And nobody knows why we're playing the game. I just say, hey, let's start with the game. And everyone kind of looks around and goes, okay. (laughs) And we play an improv game that illustrates the journey of a public speaker. And they don't know that until the end of the game when I go, all right, let's talk about what we just did and break that down. And then they all sit there and nod along and go, oh, all right. Because the improv game, what it does is it's like five or six rounds of building on short on really simple skills. Like first you're counting to three with a partner, then you're incorporating another element like snap. You're snapping with your partner and counting to three. And then the next round you're, you're stomping on the floor and counting to three. And the next round you're clapping and, and counting to three. And by the end of the game, you're really good at it and you're comfortable with your partner and you're having fun and you're laughing and you're redefining failure. And when I talk about kind of what the point of that game is, I I walk them through it and say, over the course of the last seven or 10 minutes, you built a skill. Something that in the beginning you felt like you couldn't do and it felt really awkward and, you know, herky-jerky and you felt like you didn't know who this person was that you were working with and it was really awkward. By the end, you were comfortable, you were confident, you could do it without thinking. It just felt normal and natural. Same thing with public speaking when you practice it. So when you're doing your signature talk, if you have a really important key takeaway, the best way to illustrate it is to have your audience do it if you can. And, you know, that's not always possible, especially if your key takeaway is something to do with like physics or chemistry. I don't know. But be really creative with it and think about how you can get them to really feel it and understand it by doing it and not just hearing you say it. Because a lot of people, especially with this point, that public speaking is a skill, will still say, well, I'm too shy. And they'll, tr- they'll give a million objections about why they could never do it. And But if you actually get them to practice something that's similar, 
it may actually get them to see, oh, wow, that is possible because I did just learn how to do this. And in the beginning, it was really uncomfortable and hard. The number two core takeaway that I share is that speaking is not just about the words, but it's about your mind, body, and spirit. And that all three together is what makes you a successful speaker. And I go through each of those three elements, the mind, body, and the spirit, and I demonstrate each through interactive exercises. And for the mind part, it's I ask questions to the audience and we kind of have a dialogue about it. For the body part, I have them get up and I have them practice. And if you listen to the last episode, this that whole episode is the body part of my talk where we do power posing. They learn how to breathe. They learn how to stand. And they learned how to make that noise with their mouth to kind of like, you know, to to get their face relaxed. And then for the spirit piece, they do an interactive exercise with their partner on something that they love to talk about. And it's a chance for them to access love in their body while speaking to try and train themselves to not just say the words, but actually feel the words. And that whole part of the workshop is meant to get them to think differently about the process of speaking and help them to see it as a whole body experience so that they can be more effective. So for you, when you write down your core takeaways, think how can I help the audience really feel this and understand this and not just hear this? And the more interaction you do with them, the more they will learn and the more engaged they will be. The third core takeaway is that public speaking training can change your life and that it changed mine. And I do that through storytelling. I tell my story of being shy, being quiet, standing in the sidelines and learning public speaking and realizing, oh my God, I have something to say and I want to say it and people want to hear it. And what have I done with that since? And when I tell the story about becoming a professional speaker and running a public speaking organization and having a public speaking podcast and writing lots of books and traveling around the country to speak, they hear that story and they go, oh my God, wow, yeah. So if I actually learn this skill, it could open up a lot of doors for me. And I don't need to say that to them in order for that story to get there in their mind. And so doing that storytelling can be just as effective as the interactive exercises by giving all of the vivid details and being really clear about the outcomes from doing the work. The fourth key takeaway is to help people reframe the way they think about public speaking. And so I help them think differently about what public speaking is by doing um, audience audience interaction and asking them questions. I have them reframe fear, which goes hand in hand with public speaking. I have them reframe that moment before they raise their hand and I have them reframe themselves. And so all of that is done through storytelling and interaction. And this is really important. When you're trying to change your audience's mind, you have to take them from where they are today to where you want them to be. So first you have to acknowledge that you understand their challenges and their fears and their current assumptions about your topic. And then you have to take them from point A to point B. And you can do that through storytelling and you can do that through audience interaction But the best thing is to say, hey, I understand. Public speaking is the number one fear. Anyone here kind of, you know, relate to that? And, you know, mostly a lot of people raise their hand and go, well, let's talk about that. And then it helps them to see, oh, I don't have to always just let my fear lead the way. I can actually do public speaking and be scared at the same time. 
So these four core takeaways are very closely aligned with the goals of the bigger company and not just that talk. I'm always talking about how public speaking is about more than the words you say. And I'm talking about how learning how to do it can be a transformational journey in itself, which is why Speaker Sisterhood exists. And the fear is the gateway to the work. So you see how these themes match very closely with my signature talk. You don't have to go and build something completely different from the core stuff that you're trying to accomplish in your business, you want to make sure it complements it and that your body of work is all consistent and aligned with one, with one message and one goal. So here are some tips. You want to make sure you're including the audience in some way at least every five to 10 minutes. If you have been talking for 20 minutes and no one else has said a word, you're doing it wrong. You want to make sure they are involved so that they are engaged, they're having fun, they feel like you're actually talking with them and not at them, and they feel like they're part of the experience. You want to ask open-ended, simple questions. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a motorcycle. Raise your hand if you've ever had sweaty palms before giving a speech. You know, simple things that people can you know, say yes or no to, and more complicated questions like, has anyone here ever seen a really boring speaker? What made them boring? And then you have people yell things out. And these are things that people feel comfortable yelling out. You don't want to ask like, does anyone have an STD? Raise your hand. Like no one's going to answer that question. So make sure that when you're thinking about how you're engaging with the audience, that you're not making them feel embarrassed or dumb or different. You want to make sure that you're asking questions that make them feel included And it's not that hard to do that if you think about who's sitting in your audience and probably like, you know, where they are today. Partner work is a great way to get people talking without feeling like they're the center of attention. I do a lot of partner work in my workshops, and that's because when you have the whole room talking at the same time, they're much more likely to talk to each other than if you ask a volunteer to come up to the front of the room. Everyone's probably going to stare at you, which leads me to my next tip. You should ask for a volunteer to come to the front of the room. There may be one or two people in each room who will raise their hand for that. And having a volunteer come up to the front of the room is a great way to demonstrate something you want to teach. So for that game I play in the beginning of the workshop with counting to three, I often have a volunteer come up to the front of the room and I do the game with them with that volunteer while the rest of the room is also doing it so they can watch us and then they can do it. And if you have a little prize you can give to the volunteer, that's great. If not, make sure that you have everybody clap for that person before they sit down so they feel like they've been acknowledged and that they feel special. The other tip is to tell vivid stories to illustrate your point. And when I say vivid stories, I mean you want to make sure that you're getting into the details and the emotion and the ups and downs and not just skipping through it to kind of say, okay, there was a story attached to that, but like, how did you feel? Or if you're telling a story about a client, how did your client feel? Why did they want to make this change? What made them feel like they needed to take the leap? You know, get into a lot of the the thoughts behind it, the reasoning, how you were feeling in the moment and what resulted from doing it. But if you skip over a lot of that stuff, you miss the emotional connection. And if you miss the emotional connection, then it's just a boring story. (laughs) So if you want to practice telling those stories, a great place to do that is to isolate each story and then practice it in a speaker sisterhood club or practice it in front of friends and ask them, did that elicit any kind of emotional response? Did you feel engaged by that story? Or did you feel like you were kind of losing focus and it wasn't that interesting? The last tip 
is to provide worksheets or handouts for people to take notes. And this is a really great way to also market yourself because on one side of the paper, you can create prompts for them to write things in. And on the back, you can provide information about your business. Like, hey, listen to my podcast to get more information about what we talked about here today. Check out a speaker sisterhood club. Here's the website. Book me to speak. Here's my information. So they now walk out with a big business card of yours and all their notes. So they're likely to hold on to it. And I don't use slides. I know this is very controversial <laughs> in the world of public speaking. Everybody thinks if you're speaking, you should, you should use slides, but I don't. I like to use audience interaction and talk to people, and they can write their notes down in the handouts. But if you want to use slides, use them sparingly and only for effect, like having really thoughtful images up there that prove your point, use quotes that are meaningful, use important words, but don't have slides full of sentences because people are gonna be trying to read the slides while also listening to you and that divides their attention and it breaks the connection between you and the, and the audience. So just be really careful about how you use them and don't rely on them as the speaker, use them to improve and add extra quality to your presentation. So hopefully that gives you some good tips for writing your signature talk. Um, my favorite way of kind of saying what you should and shouldn't put into a talk is don't overstuff your burrito. <laughs> Even though I've made a lot of burritos and I tend to overstuff them all the time, but this is an analogy. So when you go back and you practice your signature talk, ask yourself, is this a lot of information? Would this be too much for people to remember? Am I really making a clear point here? And a way to help solidify what you've taught is to start with in the signature talk, here's what we're going to talk about here today and outline your three or four key points and then teach them the four, three or four key points. And then at the end, say, here's what we learned today and recap the three or four points. And then people remember them and they feel like there's some, some clarity around what you just taught. So hopefully that answers the question about signature talks and what to put in them and what to leave out. And I just want to say this is this process evolves. So you can write one signature talk and at the end say, oh, you know what, I shouldn't have put all this piece in there and I should add this piece. And even though I give this one talk, Discover Your Power Voice, I change it every single time I give the talk. And I do that because it keeps getting better. And afterwards, I think, you know, I could take this joke out, but I could add this other piece that would probably drive the point home. So you're constantly working on it. And it's kind of like a stand-up comedian who's always working on their material. You just want to always be getting feedback from your audience and paying attention to how they are responding to you and the questions they're asking you so you can keep refining the content. And it'll just keep changing as you go. And if you're wondering how to prepare a longer talk, we're going to get to that because that's another question in today's Q&A episode. Question number three, how do you build credibility? <laughs> this question came from a lot of different people, and I think they're asking this question because credibility is so closely linked with public speaking. You know, people say, why be a public speaker? And I know a lot of speakers will say, well, it helps you to build credibility and visibility. And it's like, well, why is credibility so important? And, you know, credibility is your reputation. It's your brand. It's whether or not people believe you. And you can only build credibility by doing a couple of really important things. And I'm going to outline them right now. One of them is being consistent. And that means, you know, it'd be really weird if I got on this podcast tomorrow and I was like, you can only learn public speaking if you're born that way. 
everyone would say, wait a minute, didn't, doesn't she always say you can learn this skill? Why is she saying you have to be born that way? It really is confusing and conflicting, and it will make people wonder whether or not you're telling the truth and if you know what you're talking about. So having consistent messaging is really important. Having a few core messages you use repeatedly will mean that you're, you're reliable and that people know what to expect from you and that you are consistent and, and that you're not trying to be everything to everyone, but that you are an expert in this one area and people can come to you to learn more about it. Another thing is if you can share the success of the people you help, it helps other people to see that what you're doing is valuable and other people agree with that. So it's providing social proof that you are credible. Another thing is demonstrating your own success through the practice of your own advice. I think this is really important. Like when I see people talking about how important it is to make really nice Facebook graphics in order to promote your business, and then I look at their Facebook graphics and they look like crap, I'm like, why would I buy anything from you? Your Facebook graphics are horrible, and yet you talk about how important they are. So you want to make sure that you're really backing up what you're saying with your own work. And also show up places that people would expect you to be, like industry conferences, websites catering to your audience, podcasts, social media, traditional media. You want to make sure you're out there and that you're showing your face and that you're connected to the bigger group and industry so that you're not just kind of out here touting yourself as the expert and yet nobody's ever heard of you. <laughs> you know, You want to make sure that you're really networked and that you're building connections, you're showing up in places people would expect you to be. So for question number three, how do you build credibility? You want to be consistent, have a few core messages you use repeatedly, share the success of the people you help, demonstrate your own success through the practice of your own advice, and show up places that people would expect you to be. And if that all sounds like a lot, just start with being consistent. Question number four, what was your most embarrassing moment on stage and what did you do? Well, <laughs> I felt like I should leave this question in here because I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the podcast and I think it is an important topic. So this actually wasn't that long ago. It was, I think about a year and a half ago, I spoke in New York at the New York conference of, for mayors and it was kind of interesting audience for me because I don't typically talk in front of political figures and unless they're just they just happen to be there but not events specifically for them but they asked me to come because mayors are often giving speeches and a great thing for them is to continue building their public speaking skills so I went to give my talk and about three quarters of the way through the talk I talked about how you can infuse humor into anything you say any story, any advice. And when you add humor, people are more likely to pay attention because they're laughing and they're engaged and they're having fun. And one of the mayors raised his hand and he said, what if you're talking about 9-11? And I said, you can make that funny. And before I could finish the sentence or the thought, the whole audience gasped. They were like, <gasps> and I realized where I was. And I realized that for mayors in New York, this topic is still very sensitive. I mean, it, it will always be sensitive, but for them, they're constantly 
talking about it and they're they're dealing with it all the time and they have people in their communities who are still affected by it and what I was going to say was instead of talking about 9-11 as this tragic event we can talk about it from the viewpoint of rebuilding and how people have been rebuilding communities rebuilding connections rebuilding trust and 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 the people who've been doing that and you could share a specific story about someone who helped someone else and add some humor to that story and this is where i was going with this but when the whole room gasped my face immediately turned into a tomato <laughs> so when that happened i felt really embarrassed and my face turned red and then another mayor said your face is so red of course that doesn't help at all and he said my face turns red too and i'm embarrassed what should i do about that and immediately the whole conversation shifted to that and i never got back to addressing how to make 9/11 funny and for the rest of that presentation i was so embarrassed and i felt like how do i get back to that without it looking like I'm just trying to save face. And I never got back to it. And right after my presentation, we had lunch, and I was in line at the buffet, and two of the mayors from that presentation came up to me and said, want to come sit with us? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> They're going to grill me. And I said, all right. So I went over and I sat, sat down, and they were great. And they said that was a great presentation. It was really engaging. We learned a lot. Thank you. And I said, I just want to make a comment about that 9-11 thing. And they were like, oh, don't worry about it. And I said, no, no, I really want to. And so there were maybe eight mayors at this table, and I was able to say what I wanted to say, and they understood me. But there were about 100 other mayors that were in that room that weren't at my table. And I just felt like I wish I could have said what I wanted to say. But I didn't get a chance to. So that was an embarrassing moment for me because it kind of seemed like I was belittling a really important moment in history and not giving the attention and sensitivity to something that they, they deal with all the time. And so I think when you're, you're faced with talking about a, a subject that is sensitive, you have to be so careful about how you approach it and even the order of your sentences because you can lose people very quickly when you're telling them to do things that can seem out of line. And even though my advice wasn't out of line, it came across that way. So um, that was my most embarrassing moment. <laughs> and what did I do? I turned into a tomato. So that was kind of how I handled that. All right, question number five and our final question. How do you practice and prepare for a lengthier speech that's longer than five or 10 minutes? All right, this question's hard to give black and white advice for because everyone likes to practice differently and everybody delivers speeches dif differently. Some people like to memorize the whole speech. Other people like to memorize bullet points. Other people like to just memorize key points and then just go from there. So part of this is about trial and error and figuring out your own process. But I'll tell you what works for most people. And this is also what I do. I break down my talk into small pieces that I can practice on their own, and I guess I call them chunks. <laughs> um, something I teach in the curriculum of Speaker Sisterhood is called the three-circle method. And this is not only helpful for delivering the speech, but also practicing it. So what I do is I, I draw three circles on a piece of paper. This is for a five-minute speech. 
And I think about what my key points are for each of those circles. And I might write in what the story is or what the advice is or what the point is and then draw a picture of it. And then when I glance down at it, I remember what it is. And it's easy to just move through the whole speech. But when you're giving a 60-minute speech, you can't just do that with three circles. So what I do is I'll draw six or 10 or 12 circles, depending on you know how many points I have and how long the talk is. And that helps me to divide up all the information into circles. And still to this day, like I, I have every talk I give, it's divided up into little circles. And that helps me when I'm looking at it to say, all right, I'm going to memorize these three circles today. Tomorrow I'm going to memorize these two circles. And then the next day I'm going to memorize two circles. And then when I go back and try to practice the whole thing, it's really easy because I can remember where the circles are on the page. I remember the pictures, and I also remember practicing them in small pieces, and they're in my mind. So you can start with saying, today I'm going to take half an hour to memorize the first two circles. And I'm going to write down the key points below the circles, and I'm going to try to remember what's what I'm trying to get at. But I'm not going to try to remember each sentence. I'm just going to try to remember exactly the key points, and then I'm going to improvise to fill in the gaps. So if you watch my speeches, there, there's no speech that's exactly the same as another speech, but the key points are the same. And as you get more comfortable speaking, it'll be easier for you to fill in those gaps. But that all comes down to practice and repetition and telling those stories over and over again and practicing the interaction and practicing every element Because when you're in front of the group, you don't want to be trying to remember word for word a whole sentence, but you want to be remembering to pay attention to the people sitting in front of you and to give them the key points you practiced. So hopefully that helps. Um, I'm probably going to do longer episodes on practicing and preparing for speeches and giving signature talks. But for now, I think those are good answers to help you get started with those elements. So that does it for today's Q&A episode. I hope you learned a couple things here about putting your speeches together, how to deal with awkward moments on stage, <laughs> and um, also like defining heroes for yourself. And also if you want to check out Seth Godin and Sark, you might be inspired by them as well. So again, today's episode was sponsored by Speaking School for Women. This is the online course I've been teaching since 2016, and it's coming back as a self-guided offering in March. So if you're thinking about doing more speaking in 2019 and want to save yourself a lot of time when it comes to booking and delivering talks that make an impact, Speaking School will teach you how. And I'll make more announcements as we get closer, but for now, mark your calendar. This episode is also sponsored by Told Video, original, thoughtful storytelling for your brand, here to help you with your next step in marketing, a meaningful video. Let your story out into the world and get it told. Learn more at toldvideo.com. And you can contact Told before March 1st for a 15% off a video project. All right, everybody, I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. I'm going to start giving out prizes. I'm going to start reading reviews from those posted on iTunes, and it's going to be really fun. So if you haven't done one yet, please add one, and you can be added to the drawing, and I'm going to talk about it in upcoming episodes. All right, well, that does it for me this week, friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.